When I started attending the Assembly of God Church as a teenager, I learned a new way of saying goodbye. Um, They would say whatever it was they were off to do for the day and add the little phrase, unless Jesus comes back. Um, So like, see you at church next week, unless Jesus comes back. Uh, Let's meet at Culver's for frozen yogurt, you know, unless Jesus comes back. It seemed a little redundant to me. I mean, I'll be there unless some world-ending cataclysmic event occurs. It seems to be like an understood exception when one makes plans. But I laughed uh, initially, uh, but they said it with a straight face. This was all news to me. The rapture, they called it. Maybe you've heard of it. The way they told it, Jesus was coming back like, really soon. So you had to be ready all the time. Nobody could predict, as the text says, but the pastor received a word from God and confided in me, his most zealous acolyte. 2014, he said sagely, so looks like none of us made it. Feeding this expectation to an already anxiety-driven teenager was like throwing gas on a live flame. Like, what if Jesus came back when I was mowing down aliens in my favorite first-person shooter video game? Like, would he understand that I needed a break sometimes from spreading the gospel? Worse, what if he came back when I was with my boyfriend? I was sure no explanation would be good enough to keep me from hell and eternal fiery torment. I began to have vivid nightmares about going there, and for a couple of years lived in nervous expectation of the rapture. Two hucksters turned authors made millions of dollars off of that same anxiety and fear I experienced as a teenager by writing a whole series of books on being left behind. What was left behind in those books was actually any shred of responsible theology, but I digress. The Rapture. I heard about it another way years later from N.T. Wright, a theologian. He said it'll be like this, one day you'll look outside and see all these folks rising up into the air and disappearing out of sight into the clouds, and you'll say to yourself, well, I'll be damned. The rapture, as you might have popularly understood it through the lens sold by these religious profiteers dispensing a rotten theology, can be summed up pretty handily. The world is bad. One day soon, God will come and disappear the ones who are real, true Christians off to a heavenly paradise, and everyone else will be left to suffer eternal torment as the bad world ends in various disasters. Today's gospel is one of the handful of passages from the Bible used to prop up this shifty 19th century innovation of popular Christianity. Two will be working in a field, one will be taken, and the other left. Two will be grinding at the mill, one will be taken and the other left. But I don't know if you noticed, 
Even a rudimentary glance at what Jesus says here contradicts popular images of the rapture right away. What does Jesus say immediately preceding the description of those taken and those left? That it will be like the days of Noah, where a flood came and swept people away. Who are the ones to be taken in that story? The ones who get wiped out by the flood are the evil in the world, not the righteous. The righteous stay in place. They remain. This is N.T. Wright again more seriously. It should be noted that being taken in this context means being taken in judgment. There is no hint here of a rapture, of a sudden supernatural event that would remove individuals from terra firma. It is a matter, rather, of secret police coming in the night, or of enemies sweeping through a village or city and seizing all they can. Death is coming, and Jesus views this as judgment. Wright points out that the desired state is actually to be left behind, to remain. When we hear Jesus' story, of course the Passover from Exodus should come to mind, the central event of the Jewish imagination. Those who are sealed will be passed over by death. And in Jesus' time, the people hearing this originally were living in fear under Roman occupation and would understand the image of a government force sweeping in and taking those you love from you. Familiar, and familiar for plenty of folks living in America now, I should say. There are zero stories in the Bible, zero of God whisking away his beloved people to a supernatural afterlife where they can be happy forever. There is, though, a story in the Bible that gets told over and over in different ways. Here's how the story goes. God loves the world, the actual world itself, and entrusts it to certain people. Humans can't handle it. Violence and degradation follow us wherever we go. God acts to redeem this good world through a group of people who can maybe get the story right about who God is. Maybe a family. You know them. Abraham, Noah, Israel, Moses, Joshua. You know the stories. And as the story develops... God's promise given about a specific land flowing with milk and honey expands to a promise about the redemption of the world, of the entire cosmos. And the people to whom this promise was given, through whom God intended to work out this redemption, the people changed too, but in the opposite direction. As the promise for the land gets wider and wider until it encompasses all things, eventually the remnant, the ones with whom the promise rests, narrows and narrows from a nation to a family to a certain kingly line until finally the focus, the promise, rests only on one person, a Messiah. 
This familiar story played over and over will play out with a shocking twist with this one, though. It would be that this one righteous remnant would not be passed over, would not rise above the flood of violence in the safety of an ark. He would not be taken up by fiery chariots or spared our devouring human wrath. He would be the willing victim of perfect innocence who could finally stop returning violence for violence, shame for shame, fear for fear. He would turn the other cheek to death itself and would thereby break the story that has defined us throughout our existence. In Advent, we remember his death, we proclaim his resurrection, we await his coming in glory. We are not actually waiting for his birth, nor are we waiting to be whisked away. We await his coming here to us. Jesus says that this coming again is something that can be missed if you're not looking. Like when you wake up and realize that at some point in the night your truck has been rummaged through. Two were walking down the street. One was swept away by replaying the various grievances of the day. And one saw Christ. Some folks sat at church And a few were caught up on texts, another swept away with a grocery list. And one, after a dark season of waiting and God's absence, saw Christ. Christ.